The name of our new mission emphasis is To Every Nation. And so you, I think, know by now that the first of every month we will highlight uh, one of the, the ethne, one of the people groups, one of the nations uh, in the world. And, and today uh, I want to draw your attention to Brazil, the nation of Brazil, a population of roughly 208 million people, a culture that is really a uh, a, a melting pot culture. Over 50% of the inhabitants of Brazil are European. Uh, the resources there are vast and wide. They have a large labor force and expanding economy. This is a, a nation that uh, gained its independence from Portugal in 1822 as a kingdom, which is why many people uh, speak Portuguese to this day. Uh, It's a multi-party democracy that was restored as early as 1985. I'm happy to say that there is a measure of freedom in uh, in Brazil. That is freedom of religion. There's a separation of church and state, much like we have in America. There is a strong influence, a very strong influence of Roman Catholic theology that I want you to be aware of. There are a few prayer needs. Poverty affects millions upon millions of people in Brazil. Uh, Crime plagues the nation. I was uh, interested to learn that it is the second highest consumer of illicit drugs. Highest rate of firearm homicides. As far as another prayer request, you can pray for sound Bible teaching. Uh, that false teaching would be confronted. There is a, a heavy stream, and this has been this way for years, a heavy stream of prosperity theology that is taught for many pulpits that needs to be uh, crushed once and for all, and that there would be a focus on personal discipleship. Those are just a few prayer needs. You can pick up one of these uh, one-piece uh, flyers out in the foyer if you want to add it to your prayer book. And so would encourage you to be praying for the people of Brazil. I can't believe that it's been over a year now that we started the Read It promotion at the first of every month. I also recommend a book. Uh, Just a few days ago, I'm happy to report that uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a a very key figure in my life personally, uh, wrote a book entitled The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. If you are interested in the subject of prayer, want to learn more about the Lord's Prayer, uh, this is a, a powerful, powerful book. I commend it to you. We have four or five copies in the foyer if you want to pick up a copy for $13. And... Uh, I know that you'll be challenged and encouraged to, to read Dr. Muller's new book. Let's pray this morning for uh, the nation of Brazil together. Father, thank you for this chance each month to have an emphasis where we focus our attention on one of the nations that you love. And we think today about Brazil and would focus the next 30 days and, and really... Uh, Uh, focusing our our prayer concern for them. We pray that uh, you would grow the church there, that sound Bible teaching would continue to to escalate in this country. God, I pray that the the matter of prosperity theology uh, would be subdued and ultimately silenced, and that the the gospel of grace would reign supreme. I pray for church planters, that you would enable them by your grace, that new churches would be planted to reach new people with new ethnic backgrounds, Backgrounds and that uh, your word would go forth with great power. I think of my own friend who teaches uh, at a seminary in Brazil, that you would strengthen Bruce and encourage him during these days and uh, 
show us how we can be an encouragement to these uh, dear people. And so would you uh, spark reformation and revival in this country so far away, so far removed from us, but help us to be concerned for them and to pray for them uh, for uh, their good and also for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, I want to invite you to turn once again to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. The summit of Mount Everest is 29,028 feet, the highest peak in the world, of course. And you're well aware that climbers from around the world attempt to scale this formidable and dangerous mountain. Some of these adventure seekers are simply unable to... uh, complete their goal. And tragically, if you have read some of the books that have been published in recent years or seen a documentary, that some people actually pay the ultimate price in their quest for the summit. Many people die every year in their quest for the summit. But the ones that actually do make it to the top, the ones who do succeed, are rewarded with a remarkable view, uh, provided that The clouds cooperate. The view at the summit provides a perspective for these climbers as they scan God's good creation on a clear day and see things from the summit of Mount Everest that, frankly, most people would never see and can never see. This morning, if you would follow along with me in this metaphor, we will spend some time, some extended time, at another kind of a summit. At the top of this peak, we will have a chance to see things from God's perspective as we marvel at his greatness and as we marvel at his power. I want to say this morning that God loves to showcase his power. Whether it is the creation of the cosmos, the calming of the seas, the casting out of demons, or the closing of the lion's mouth, one of my personal favorites, God finds great delight in showing the nations that he is the Lord. In the book of Exodus, if you would turn there with me while you're holding your finger in Ephesians chapter 1, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 9. You'll remember that when, when Pharaoh refused to listen to Moses, God sent a series of plagues. First, he turned the water to blood. And then he sent a plague of those pesky creatures, the frogs. And then he sent a plague of of gnats. And then he sent a plague of of flies. I can tell you on a few occasions, I'll be sitting in my study preparing the sermon, and a great big horsefly will make its way into my study and fly around my head and into my ear and up my nose. I'm just kidding. And... If you've ever had the the great pleasure of a horsefly making its way around you, I don't think I'm alone in this. It drives you bananas. Well, think about the plague of flies. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of flies. And then God sent the plague that caused the Egyptian livestock to die. 
If you ever smelled some roadkill on the side of the road, you know, that's a hideous, hideous smell. And in this instance, God sends a plague where the livestock throughout the land die. And then he sent a plague of boils. That had to have been fun. And after the boils, he sent the plague of hail. And then after he sent the plague of hail, and by the way, God is not done sending plagues in this story. He utters these words to Moses. I want to have you look at these words with me in Exodus 9, verse 16. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh. I have raised you up to, notice, show you my power. So that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. Over the last several weeks, we have been studying Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And I want to take you through just a bit of review to show you where we've been and where we're going to go. And Lord willing, we will finish our first chapter in the book of Ephesians this morning. We started in verses 15 and 16, where we learned about Paul's profound gratitude for the people of God. And if you remember two weeks ago, it, it was a deep, powerful gratitude. It was a, what we call the profound gratitude as Paul expresses thanksgiving for the Ephesian people. And then we looked last week at the prayer for God's people. Verses 16 through 19, we saw Paul praying not only for the Ephesian believers, but praying for each subsequent believer, including you and I. Today we turn our attention to the closing words of Ephesians chapter 1, where we find Paul expressing praise, and specifically praise to God for exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to prepare you for two things that we will discover this morning by way of overview. First, we will, if you would get back in the metaphor with me just for a moment, we will scale to the very summit of Mount Everest in Paul's thought and come face to face with some very weighty and intense theological reality. And then after we look at four very specific theological realities that Paul praises God for, then I want to lead you back down off the mountain, and I want you to see some very practical implications. And that is the, the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. We see that theology is taught to the people of God, and once we embrace and understand that theology, then we're called to live that theology out. You see, theology is never an end in itself. We don't study theology to get an A on the test. We study theology, you see, for life transformation. So the title of the message this morning is Into Thin Air, The Life-Changing View from the Summit. I want to have you stand with me, and for our purpose this morning, I'm going to read once again the whole of First Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, but then we will highlight the specific text that we will focus on this morning. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immense 
immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we're excited to to dig into this final section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1. And as we scale to the very summit of this mountain, I pray that we would see wonderful things in your law. I pray, God, that you would, you would literally blow us away with this amazing theological reality. May we enjoy the view. And as we find ourselves marveling at the view, this great truth that we will study, as, as we come off the mountain, I pray that you would show us practical steps of application, attitudes that we should have, actions that we should take, all because of the view that we have enjoyed. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. By way of introduction, I want you to see that Paul strings some words together in verse 19 to simply show the vastness of God's power. I want you to see four things about the power of God in verse 19. Notice that first very important word, immeasurable. God's power is immeasurable. The Greek word means extraordinary power. It's a word that can be translated as surpassing power. And the verb in the original sense means to throw beyond. It means to stand out or to excel. It means means excess. It means supreme stage or measure, literally. Now, the same word, if you look just to the next chapter in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, appears in that verse as well. And we'll look at this in the coming days. Paul says, so in the, in the coming ages, he might show, notice the word, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the same word. I want you to see also that God's power is not only immeasurable, but God's power is effective. This is one that we can't miss. In verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the, here's the word, working. The working. That is to say, God's power is effective. The word working comes from a Greek word that means to bring about, which might not sound very significant to you. But I want you to remember that when God works, when God is involved in working or brings something about, he does it powerfully. It wasn't too many months ago that John Piper tweeted this message and this tweet went viral. And I think we'll be encouraged with this. He says, quote, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you, you may be aware of three of them. Did you catch that? God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you just might be aware of three of them. The scripture says this. 
God, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, we learn more about this effective power. The scripture says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Third, I want you to see that God's power is great. And you'll see that in verse 19, according to the working of his great might. That's a word that means controlling power. I talk to people from time to time who are uncomfortable with God's controlling power. Could I say humbly and also a bit aggressively, if you're not comfortable with God's controlling power, to begin to get comfortable with God's controlling power? Because I would argue that if God's power is not all-consuming and all-controlling, then the universe is a very, very scary place. That word great is also translated as dominion. I want to do a, just a, a mini Bible study with you and have you turn with me to a few other passages. The first would be in the book of 1 Timothy. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. And here at the end of, of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is just excited about the living God. He says that God alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Get ready for the word. To him be honor and eternal dominion. That's the same word translated great in Ephesians 1, verse 19. And then go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Peter says that whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified, glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever. Finally, back in Ephesians 1.19, you see that there's one word at the end of the verse there, and we learn that God's power is mighty. God's power is immeasurable. God's power is effective. God's power is great. And fourth, God's power is mighty. And so Paul expresses in this final section of Ephesians chapter 1, he expresses great praise to God specifically for his exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already made reference to the fact that God loves to showcase his power. But for the remainder of our time, I want to ask, how exactly does God showcase his power? And then finally, what are the implications for us? We will see this morning that God showcases his power in four very specific ways. And I want you to, once again... Make your way to the top of this 
metaphorical mountain and look at the first thing that Paul praises God for as he sees that that Paul is show, that God is showcasing his power in a specific way. And I want you to to imagine this that we make a way make our way to the summit. We're at 29,000 feet. We've got oxygen on. And why is the oxygen required? Because the air is thin. We're in thin air at this point. Theologically the same thing is happening. We are in thin air. This is mind-boggling truth. And as we gaze through these binoculars and look at the beautiful reality that God has for us, here's what Paul says. He says that when the power of God is showcased, he showcases it when he raised Christ from the dead. This is the first way that God showcases his power in this passage. When he raised Christ from the dead. Look at verse 20. That he worked, there's that same word again, by the way. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Some of you have been paying careful attention to personal pronouns, haven't you? And here again in this passage, we see that we need to work hard to to reconcile who Paul is referring to. That, That he or the Father worked in Christ when he or the Father raised him, that is, raised Jesus from the dead. Take a detour with me for a moment and come to the place of the skull. You remember the place of the skull, I'm sure. What's commonly referred to as Golgotha. And prior to his arrival at the place of the skull, the Lord Jesus Christ was flogged. He was beat with the cat of nine tails. Then in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, the soldiers placed a crown of thorns on his head and they wrapped a purple robe around his body. And you imagine those massive thorns as they, as they smashed that thorn upon his head and made his scalp bleed and the blood would, would drip into his eyes and onto his face and onto his lips. And then he'd already been beaten with the cat of nine tails and so his back was, was bleeding, his back was, was filled with sores. And then they put this robe on him. Anytime the robe would be pulled, it would, it would pull these sores that had been created just moments before. And the crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate delivers the Lord Jesus Christ then to be crucified. And they took Jesus to the place of the skull and they crucified him. After several hours, as you know, of enduring unbearable agony, the Bible describes the remaining moments of our Lord's crucifixion in John 19, 28 to 30. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. If there's any doubt about what happened on the cross, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation writes in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. I died. 
the king of glory, the second member of the Godhead. Jesus Christ is crucified. He gives up his spirit and he dies on the cross. Now, if you're a person that likes to write in your Bible or make highlights or marks in your Bible, and I, and I hope that you're that kind of a person. Because I, I can tell you that every time I get a new Bible, I'm so excited. But the thing that just takes a while is I have to go through and make all the same highlights again to remember those notations that I've made. There are four very important verbs by way of introduction that I want you to see in this passage and that this will actually help to guide us through these remaining verses in Ephesians 1. The words are raised, and that's the one we'll focus on now. The second word, if you want to look uh, further on in this passage, is also in verse 20. It's the word seated, and Ken made reference to that during the call to worship. And then in verse 22, This is a word that you might tend to skip over. It's the word put. And then finally, also in verse 22, is the word gave. Those four verbs are going to guide our thoughts for the remainder of the message. And so look first at the word raised. The word raised. It means to awaken the dead. It's a word that means to to literally rise from the dead. And you'll recall that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied, not only by the prophets, but also by the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recall that he told his disciples, tear down this temple, destroy this temple, and it will be rebuilt in three days. And the disciples are like, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus, it took a long time to build that temple. What, What gives? Well, the resurrection, you need to understand, took took place in real time and space. Listen to what Acts 2.24 says. Peter, the apostle, says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's that tell us? It tells us that God delights in revealing his power. Also in Acts 3.15, Peter says to these men, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then in Acts 4.10, once again, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. So the power of God is showcased when he raised Jesus from the dead. But he also showcases his power in another way in verse 20. Once again, at the top of this metaphorical mountain, we look through the binoculars and we see that God displays his power by raising Christ from the dead. But secondly, we see that he displays his power when he seated Christ at his right hand. When he seated Christ at his right hand. That's the second verb I had you highlight or make a notation of in your Bible. And the word seated is a word that means to install or to appoint. To install or appoint. It would be similar to when the president of a country is installed. And so we have a situation where President Trump was was installed as the president of the United States of America. Here... We see that God, his power is showcased when he seated Christ at his right hand. Who's his? At the Father's right hand. When the Father seated the Son at his right hand, it was an appointment of magnanimous 
proportion and importance. Would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews and we'll see one of the the big reasons why this is so important. Hebrews chapter 12 and look with me at verse 1 and 2. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. And keep that second verb at the forefront of your mind, that word seated. Now the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What Hebrews 12 reminds us is this, is that all the pain, all the shame that was associated with the cross preceded his being seated at the right hand of God the Father. We refer to this in theology as the heavenly session. When you read the language of Jesus being seated or installed at the right hand of the Father, theologians refer to this as the heavenly session. Notice the comprehensive authority now that God the Father grants to the Son when he seats him, as the verse continues, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This, my friends, is a comprehensive authority, which is delegated to the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of being in a a frozen posture, that's how some Christians and some theologians see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Instead of being in a frozen posture, as, as one who is waiting to reign during the millennial reign, what we find is much different. We find Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father when? Right now. Jesus is not waiting to rule during the millennium. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Now, The Westminster Larger Catechism, question number four, helps us to, to further understand this heavenly session. The question the framers of the catechism write is this. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Answer. Christ is exalted in his sitting down at the right hand of God. In that as God man, he has advanced to the highest favor with God the Father. With all fullness of joy, glory, power over things in heaven and on earth, and subdue their enemies, furnish his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and makes intercession for them. Here's what I want you to see this morning. We've already learned that one of the ways that that God's power is showcased is when he raised Jesus from the dead. But now we're seeing that God's power is, is revealed as He seats Jesus as he installs Jesus at his right hand. And as we gaze through the binocular at the top of this metaphorical mountain, this should cause our minds 
to expand. This should cause our, ho- our hearts to explode with reverence. You see, this is not abstract theology. When we learn that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, when we learn that the Father has seated Jesus at His right hand, that as a result, He's given Him comprehensive authority of everything in the cosmos, it should cause our hands to be extended in worship. It should make a difference in our lives, as we'll see in a moment. Well, there's a third thing. We grab the binoculars again, and we look to see how God's power is revealed. And it's this way, in verse 22, when he put all things under Christ's feet. When he put all things under Christ's feet. Verse 22, and he, who describes the Father, When the Father put all things under His feet, that is, the Son's feet. That's the third verb I had you to highlight, that word put. And it's a word that means to force, to submit, or subdue. He put all things under His feet. I want you to notice that when the Bible tells us that the Father puts all things under Jesus' feet, this is a a citation from Old Testament passages, one which is found in Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. The psalmist says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We find the same in Psalm 110, verse 1. But for now, recognize that there, there is nothing in the cosmos that Christ does not rule over or have supremacy over. The great Dutch statesman and educator and theologian Abraham Kuyper said, In the total expanse of the human life, there is not a single square inch of which Jesus Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare mine. That is to say, when when Jesus looks at farmland, he says, mine. When Jesus looks at the White House, he says, mine. When Jesus looks at the Kremlin, he says, that's mine too. When Jesus looks at the nations, he says, all the nations are mine. God has placed everything under my feet. We grab the binoculars one more time as we are at the top of this metaphorical mountain and we say, what else can we learn about this great God of the universe? And we learn that the power of God is showcased when he delegated authority to Christ. Once again, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him or Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. All and all. God gave Jesus, once again, authority over all things. Nothing is excluded. That little verb, gave, is a word that can be translated as to grant or to appoint. To grant or to appoint. That's exactly what God is doing here. He appoints or delegates authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God showcases his power when he raises Christ from the dead, when he seated Christ at his right hand, when he put all things under his feet, and as he delegated authority to him. And what does Paul do? He praises God for this great reality. This is the life-changing view from the summit. Now, I've never climbed 
Mount Everest. And I will say this dogmatically. I will never climb Mount Everest. I read into thin air. I know what happened in that encounter. However, I do know something about mountain climbing that we should all remember. There's something that every mountain climber understands. As you gaze upon this beautiful landscape... A mountain climber at the top of Mount Everest, 29,028 feet, gazes on a clear day and has this amazing perspective. But there's one thing I've learned as I've read some books about Mount Everest, because I'm scared to go on Mount Everest. That's why I read books about Mount Everest. I'm scared. When you make the summit climb, you only have a few minutes. you got to get back down before the weather gets bad. And so one thing you learn quickly about mountain climbing, especially at the top of high peaks, is you can't stay there forever. You have to you have to go back down. And that has some good lessons for the Christian life. We have to come back down and live in the real world. Sometimes it's easy to study these theological truths and be like, man, this this is amazing. I learned about the heavenly session. That's that's so cool. I learned about how how Jesus Christ has been delegated authority from God the Father. Jesus is risen from the dead. But now we have to come back off the mountain and learn some earth-shattering implications of the view that we just experienced at the summit. And so notice several implications as we close. The first implication should be by far the most obvious. The view in Ephesians 1, 19 to 23 should cause us to join with the Apostle Paul and praise God for exalting Christ. I want to ask you this morning a personal question. What is your heart level response when you learn that God the Father exalted Christ? Is the inclination of your heart to to praise God for all that he has accomplished in the Lord Jesus? Do you make it a habit to thank God for sending Jesus to be the final payment for your sin? I continue to to bug you all about this attitude of gratitude challenge. You thought I was going to forget about it. We're, we're uh, what, over five weeks into it now, right? Almost five weeks into it. I'm going to keep bugging you the rest of the year. One of the things that, that we should all be writing is... As we jot down what we're thankful for, God, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be the final payment for my sin. Thank you, God, for for seating, for installing Jesus at your right hand. Thank you, God, for putting all things under the feet of the Son. Thank you, God, for delegating your sovereign authority to the Son. If you've been wrestling with what to write, like, man, I've got over 300 things I need to write over the next year. I just gave you four. You've got four things you can be thankful for this week. There's a second thing, a second implication I want you to see, that since Christ has been raised from the grave, everyone who puts their faith in him will be acquitted before the heavenly tribunal. Look with me at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. While you're turning there, I would tell you a, an interesting story. There's a, a casting crown song. And there's a line in that song that says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and that he was raised for our justification. I have a, a dear friend and he's a godly guy and he's a good theologian. He told me, man, he says, I was, 
I was listening to that Casting Crown song, and I was, I was concerned about the language of the song that we were, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He said, what do you think about that? And I said, let's see what the Bible says. And isn't that what we always are called to do? Whether it's a song, a book, a magazine, whatever it is, we, we run it through the grid of Scripture. And we have this really, it was an amazing experience because my friend liked the song. But if it wasn't biblical, he didn't want anything to do with it. And I said, let's look at Romans 4.25 that says this, that Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, was raised for our justification. The song says exactly what Romans 4.25 says. And he was like, yes, I'm going to keep listening to that song. That's a good song. It was a great exercise for both of us. But here's what we need to remember this morning, that as we learned in Veritas this morning, that salvation, we must always remember that salvation has a threefold sense. And what I mean by that is this, that we were, that's past tense, we were saved from the penalty of sin. We were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from sin's very presence one day when we stand together on the new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints from every generation. And so we walk in resurrection power. Greg Allison says this, because Christ is exalted. And I know that's what some of you are wondering right now. How does the exaltation of Christ affect me in the office tomorrow morning? How does Christ's exaltation encourage me as I go off to school tomorrow morning? What's it mean in the real world? Allison says, because Christ is exalted, we may walk in resurrection power. We may live a new identity as citizens of heaven and may experience the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted by the Father, it means everything in our Christian lives. It gives us hope. It gives us resolve. It puts a, a, a new spring in our step as we move forward knowing that our sins are cast into the deepest of seas. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. Indeed, as Isaiah says, our sins are behind his back. There's a third implication. Since Christ has been raised, so too shall every follower of Christ be raised. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with him. By baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want to ask this morning, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead? Have you been acquitted before the heavenly tribunal? Have you heard the, the gavel from God the Father that says, Innocent. Joe, you're innocent. Diana, you're innocent. 
Greg, you're innocent. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of who you place your trust in. Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Number four, since Christ is seated at God's right hand, we can be confident that he intercedes for us. That is to say that that he prays for us on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 is, is helpful in this regard. The verse says this, that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Later today, tomorrow, the remainder of this week, over the next month, as you struggle, as we all admitted in Veritas today that we all still struggle. We struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. Remember this. That Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, the one who God exalted, he is praying for you. Have you ever had a note from someone who you really respected? Someone who you didn't ever think you'd hear from? And they send you a note or they send you a text or jot you an email. Or better yet, they even call you and they just say, I just want to let you know. I'm praying for you. You're like, moi? Like, you're praying for me? Here the Bible tells us that, that Jesus Christ makes intercession for his people. Number five, the exaltation of Christ reassures us that he is sovereign over all things. Psalm chapter 115, verse three. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Have you come this morning with fear? Is fear seizing your soul? Is, is fear or anxiety like a python around your neck? Some of you experience panic attacks, and I have experienced the same. Know this. We can fear not because Christ is in control. Number six, the exaltation of Christ prompts God-centered living. In the book I'm recommending for this month by Albert Muller, he says this, Faithfulness in the Christian life makes the glory of God go public. The church must therefore remember that to the degree to which God's glory is manifested on earth depends on how we conduct ourselves as his redeemed image bearers. And the fact that Jesus is an exalted Savior prompts and encourages God-centered living. Number seven, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ reassures us that he will return to judge. J.I. Packer says that Christ's session, you remember the heavenly session, the session will continue until all his and our enemies, including death, are brought to nothing. Death, the last enemy, will cease to be when Christ at his appearing raises the dead for judgment. Once judgment has been executed, the work of the kingdom will be over. I should say the mediatorial kingdom will be over and Christ will triumphantly deliver the kingdom to his father. Finally, the exaltation of Jesus Christ reassures us that he will make all things new. You see, God loves to showcase his power. And the power of God is clearly displayed in this passage. When he raised Christ from the dead, 
seated Christ at his right hand, put all things under his feet, and when he gave Christ authority over all things. This is the life-changing view of the summit. And Paul praises God for his exaltation of Christ. And my question this morning, as we wrap things up, is are you taking time to enjoy the view I'm sure that some of you have ever, you, you, you've taken a hike as my family went to Mount Baker just yesterday, the snowshoe for the first time, Woo-hoo, right? But have you ever gone either snowshoeing or, or hiking or enjoyed God's good creation? And you go on the hike and you get back and you say to yourself, I didn't take any pictures and I didn't even look at anything. I believe it was Scott Meyer who recommended that I take my kids on the Oyster Dome hike, and it was, Karen, please, I think I've told Scott, but it, unbelievable, I can't wait to do it a dozen more times. But the Oyster Dome hike is just off, what's it, Chuckanut Way, and you climb what seems a million miles into the sky, and you get to the top, and on a clear day, you, you can see everything. I, I'm pretty sure I saw China. I'm pretty sure. It, it is amazing. But it would be like this. If you climbed all the way to the top of the Oyster Dome and you, you didn't look at a thing, there's a word for that. That's not so. If you climb to the top, if you exert that effort to get to the top, you have to take some time. Take pictures. Look at God's good creation. Enjoy the view. My question as we look at this passage, are you enjoying the view? Are you taking time to enjoy Not only God's good creation, but in terms of this passage, are you taking time to enjoy this view? Paying attention to the idea, the the reality that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, that he put all things under his feet, and he delegated all authority, comprehensive authority to Jesus. Let's take time together and enjoy the view. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Ephesians chapter 1. We have taken many weeks to to plumb the depths of this uh, treasure chest in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I pray, God, that as your people, that you would help us to slow down, that you would teach us to enjoy the view. And as we revel in these great theological realities and these great theological mysteries, God, I pray that they would impact our lives. God, I pray that our our hearts would be enlarged. I pray that we would, as a result of of viewing this, this amazing reality, that we would love lost people more, that we would love your truth more, that we would have a desire to to walk around in the culture that you have, have placed us in, and that we would make a lasting difference in the lives of people. God, at the end of the day, I pray that your truth would make a difference, that it would mobilize our hands and our feet, that you would open our mouths, that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears to the the truth of your word, and that we would have a desire to make a difference. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.